You're listening to Outside the Chamber, and I'm your host, Eleanor Sturko, the member of BC's Legislative Assembly for Surrey South, here in beautiful Surrey, British Columbia. There are a ton of challenges we're facing in BC today, from the unbelievably high cost of living to the current healthcare crisis and beyond. British Columbians have a lot to talk about. That's why my team and I have decided to create a podcast that goes beyond the legislative chamber and has real discussions about the issues facing our province. On this episode of Outside the Chamber, we're going to be talking about potential gaps in BC's mental health care system and the challenges that family members face when trying to help their loved one who's in crisis or who might be suffering from a serious mental illness. Just a heads up to anyone for whom this subject might be distressing on our episode today, we will be discussing the subject of suicide. Now, according to the BC CDC in 2022, suicide was one of the top three causes of death among people aged 10 to 39. The last available update specific to the number of suicides in BC listed 582 deaths in 2021, with more than 400 of these deaths attributed to young men. The topic of mental health and suicide prevention is one that a lot of people know is very near and dear to my heart, and it's one of the reasons that I decided to run for public office. I wanted to help identify gaps in care and improve services for people suffering from mental health issues. So, is there more that we can be doing to help prevent suicide in BC, and are there things that we could be doing to improve care for people with suicidal ideations? Joining me today to talk about this important issue are Crystal Kenzie and Cindy Zimmer. On February 9th of 2023, their brother James took his own life after being discharged from Royal Jubilee Hospital in Victoria. He was just 50 years old. So I want to thank you both for coming over from the island for this discussion. I really appreciate that you've made the trip. So welcome to our studio today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us here. So for all the good work that's being done, it really still isn't easy to talk about mental health. There's still, I would say, and I'm not sure if you would agree, but a lot of stigma, particularly surrounding suicide. So why have you guys decided to share your story? Well, initially when we found out that our brother had passed and even before when we found out he had been discharged, we immediately shared the same reaction that something had gone seriously wrong and we wanted to make sure that we could shine some light on it get some answers and help to ensure that this isn't going to continue happening yeah i i think you know it was really apparent to us that we felt that this was not okay our brother didn't have the opportunity to have his family be there for him in his most crucial you know mental health crisis uh, his most vulnerable moments of his life um, and we also felt that it was um, it was not acceptable that we were not given that opportunity to be able to show up for him and I think that we we feel like that we need to we need to be open and vulnerable as difficult it is as it is to talk about this but to to shed some light on um, on this, and we and we are just really driven to want to not have this happen to anyone in the future, and and there there is serious gaps that need to be addressed. 
So just for clarity, um, for people who may not be familiar with your story, your brother was discharged um, from involuntary care and um, although it's a requirement of Section 34 of our Mental Health Act here in BC, neither of you were informed that he was discharged. So, and so, you know, when, when I brought James into the hospital on f February 7th, um, the, the emergency room doctor made him involuntary at that moment and then it was the next morning when he was in PEZ and, and meeting with the psychiatrist that they, they actually didn't keep him involuntary at that time. He was actually made voluntary. Um, and, you know, so, you know, they, they basically, um, they didn't assess that appropriately in, in our eyes. Um, so, you know, but when I left him that night, he was involuntary. So let's go back a little bit, and I know you've done other media, but as it happens with a lot of times with other media, you get a small soundbite. Um, and maybe you know one and a half to two minutes worth of coverage on really important issues. So I wanted to give you an opportunity. Maybe we could go back and talk a little bit about who your brother James was, and 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 who he was as a person, and how he became um, involved in in sort of a situation where he was uh, in mental health care. Well, our brother was a really kind and sensitive soul. He. Family was really important to him. He, he struggled a bit throughout his life with like school and relationships, but his relationship with his family was always really important to him, um, especially with our grandmother. And he just, after time, I think all of the different traumas and stresses in his life were really hard for him to process and deal with. and. I think he got to a point where it just started eating at him and I think we saw a huge decline you know around 2016 shortly after our grandmother passed away um, and it just went from there so more recently he entered the mental health system due to delusions and, and paranoia um, that were unrelated to anything and, and he actually went to Cindy's house seeking help because he felt scared and knew that he was safe um, to ask for help. Mm -hmm. um, you know we we see over time that um, when someone is really struggling to well and so on I, I speak directly to what I saw with James you know, I think men in particular really struggle to understand how to process their feelings and their emotions and work through some of, of this uh, emotional pain. Um, and then sometimes people, you know, will gravitate to things like alcohol or substances, you know, just to try and quiet down the pain that they, they can't seem to process through. And I think that, you know, you know, our brother did struggle in the past with that um, and had some issues with psychosis um, that was connected with with drinking. However, this time around, um, you know, this was totally different. He, you know, showed up at my house and he was very clear that he was having a, um, 
a, a, a psychosis, really. He was having paranoid thoughts. He thought that uh, his dog was going to be in harm by you know someone that was after him. He was really scared, and he wanted help. Um, we we um, you know I, he agreed to let me take him to the hospital to get help. Um, but I think that um, the concerning part was that this was not connected at all to alcohol at that time. This was something that he was experiencing. It was very much an acute mental health crisis, and he wanted he wanted to get help. And that was back in November, actually, that that he sought out help through Cindy for this. Um, mm -hmm. So that was prior to the admission in February. So, you know, um, before we get to sort of laying out the circumstances that, you know, the, the days leading up to James' death and, and the circumstances that sort of took place over that time, maybe I could just ask you to share a little bit about um, your involvement in his care. So he was struggling over a period of time. You mentioned about your grandmother's death and then um, dealing with, you know, his personal trauma and perhaps in some ways self-medicating, but then actually experiencing maybe a more acute mental health issue. So it sounds like though, I mean, you had a good relationship, you felt comfortable to come to you as a sister and, and to get help. So what type of involvement did you have as a family member um, in trying to help your brother navigate his health care? Well, I think, um, you know, if we're, if we're talking over that time period, um, you know, going back to 2016 leading up to 2023, you know, it, it was, um, he knew that we were always there for him. He, he did allow us to, you know, help him as much as, um, you know, siblings can. Um, you know, I know that we, we'd had times where James lived with Crystal and, you know, and she can speak more to that. Um, in 2016, when he was sort of first having his first delusional episode, Cindy and I would check on him, found him, he ended up getting help and then going into detox for alcohol abuse and um, when he was getting discharged from the hospital, actually, Cindy and I were brought in on a meeting where the doctor expressed to us that he maybe had some cognitive delays and that we needed to look out for him. And at that point, um, he came and lived with my husband and my children and I for, I feel like seven months almost. He was with us for quite a while and he worked on sort of rehabilitating. He was a carpenter. So he couldn't, like, he wasn't there enough to work at that point. So he built things in my yard. He built a chicken coop with my kids. We, like, re-landscaped the whole thing, and he sort of healed, and he would sit up with me every night and talk, and we just had that relationship. Um, and on other occasions, um, he had, you know, to stay with our mother, um, and Cindy was involved with him that way. Cindy's always been involved with his sort of um, in-hospital communication with the doctors. She's attended lots of meetings with social workers, and you can speak on that, Cindy. Yeah, I am, um, you know, the during the admission that James had from, you know, November, it was actually, you know, November 7th, it was actually on his birthday, his 50th birthday, he came to my house, and it, this was, you know, when he was experiencing the psychosis. Um, he allowed me to bring him into the hospital. Um, he was in the hospital. They, 
they made him involuntary at that time and they he went to the adult mental health um, unit there and I had a meeting with his psychiatrist um, you know and, and it was it was something that I found very um, a little bit disheartening um, I found that um, you know when I was asking questions about what sort of supports and services that were available to James being there I mean he's there and what exactly is going on here for him to get any form of treatment or you know supports with what he was needing to work through and it was like there's just it didn't seem like there was much of anything available other than you know a few group activities there was nothing available through counseling there was and it was essentially it was all based in medication and I was quite shocked when when he first arrived there and they went straight to wanting to assess him for electric shock therapy and this is a guy who wasn't even on an antidepressant yet he hadn't even gone down that road and I and I had communicated with the doctor that you know that there is there has been a lot of anxiety um, in our family uh, the doctor agreed that sometimes this is you know genetic and you know I opened up and Crystal you know said it was okay for me to share that you know she's struggled with anxiety and, and she takes medication for it and has been very successful and the doctor at that time even said oh well you know that's something worth considering mm -hmm. because sometimes that can be very helpful yeah um, you know, especially if it works for another family member, like a sibling, and um, but that was never explored, and and it was it sort of was like you get ten minutes with the psychiatrist, they prescribe a medication, and it just doesn't seem to be a very, you know, human-centered approach to the care at all, and and I. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty uh, eye-opening and pretty disturbing uh, from my perspective that um, there's very little being offered to help um, individuals that yeah. need this help. Yeah, it's actually surprising, you know, hearing that part of it as something that we haven't discussed previously. And But, you know, it's in, it's which is why it's important to have these conversations. And I think hearing both of you talk about your experience helping your brother and helping him navigate um, well our healthcare system is very piecemeal um, and especially if, if he's been diagnosed with cognitive um, challenges I mean you can imagine without family support you know and I think one of the things is um, we've been advocating for from our office here and um, I know you guys are both big supporters of um, helping families to help those that they are supporting and it's a clear example especially when you speak to him uh, to James living with you um, and actually almost doing like a form of therapy building the chicken coop having that connection yeah. I think it really speaks to the importance of, um, of families being involved in healthcare and being able to share that collateral information so um, Moving to sort of a more difficult phase of our conversation, are you guys able to share with us a little bit about what happened leading up to James's death? So he was brought to the hospital, um, and, and then where did it go from there? Um, just a little bit of a backstory on that, just for some timeline purposes. So he went to Sydney in November. He was there involuntary for three months. He was not drinking. He had been sober for 14 months. He was in the adult mental health, involuntary, given these fresh air breaks, 
and started drinking while in their care and would go missing. So we would get these calls and I would have to collaborate with police to find him, ping his phone and be on the phone with him supportively holding space for him, keeping him with us while he was in active suicidal crisis. Um, he'd be on hospital property. A couple times um, Cindy had to go there and find him on the hospital grounds because the nurses just informed us he was gone. And so you yourself had to go and actually yeah. track him down? Yeah, okay. a number of times. I, um, Crystal would be on the phone with him working from My that husband end. would be on the phone with the police, like we'd have a whole system and this happened multiple times while he was in their care and volunteer. I would get up there, I'd, I'd, I'd meet with the police officers, I'd be showing them p current pictures of him and then, and then, and because, you know, often um, my brother was very, it was almost like he got into like routines of things and it was like, it was almost predictable predictable behavior Very because this started to happen a couple of times that it was like well then his first stop is usually here and then so we started to trace his steps and I just kind of knew like oh well it's he's either going to be here or there um, and we were able to find him and bring him back it, it's um, and I think that what was I found very um, concerning too was this happened on a Friday so he had um, he had been given a fresh air break, he got out, he had been um, found, brought back in. Then on the Monday, um, there was a, a meeting with the psychiatrist and um, it was agreed that he was, he was going to only be allowed family accompanied visits. That evening, he had gotten out on a fresh air break, same thing happened. And this was over the span of a weekend. So I was concerned maybe the psychiatrist didn't even read the notes that this had taken place on the Friday. The other aspect was the fact that, well, if that happened on the Friday, why would he then be allowed fresh air breaks on the Monday? So I thought maybe he had just gotten out unbeknownst because often what would happen is the doors would just open. A number of individuals would be allowed out on fresh air breaks, but not everybody. And there wasn't always um, someone there monitoring who was coming and going out of right. the door. Right, so maybe someone that wasn't allowed would be mm -hmm. going. So okay. I thought maybe that could have been the case, but then later um, had the when we brought him back, had the nurse look in the notes, and sure enough, it was, it was okay for him to have this fresh air break. So I guess I, I really struggled with this idea that here's somebody there involuntary. Yeah, they open the door and let them go out the door. The other aspect to that is sometimes individuals are able to get substance, like, um, you know, people bring things in. So individuals go out on fresh air breaks. They have people that are meeting up with them out front the doors to, you know, supply whatever it is that they're asking for. And, um, you know, and so there was an occasion there where our brother was, um, you know, partaking in some drinking in the unit. Um, and that somebody brought him in, another patient brought him. Okay. Brought him yeah. in. Concerning, right? I mean, obviously speaks to potentially, you know, yeah. um, a lack of supervision. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't have all the details of, of how that works. But yeah. I mean, for you as a family, it would have been incredibly frustrating. And then he was punished um, for it and put in the PICU, which is a place where people with severe severe psychosis and psychiatric behaviors end up. So yeah. he was just locked up in there 
which then increases his, the, his stress. The trauma. And, I yeah. mean, trauma yeah. upon trauma yeah. upon trauma the whole time yeah. for three months. Yeah. And, and yeah. So, you know, I want to make sure that we, we have enough time to talk about, you know, everything. And so he was in the hospital. Um, and then I, I think from a further conversation we had actually before the podcast, you mentioned that he was discharged to go to an alcohol treatment. So, mm-hmm. so what was that all about? Well, so that was the, this was the thing as, as time went on. And even though he uh, was originally admitted to the hospital with a psychosis, which had no connection to alcohol at that time, um, over time he, as he was there involuntary, he started to drink when he had these opportunities. So then um, the psychiatrist basically had said, well, we cannot help James for his mental health issues until he gets treatment for his alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say that I actually challenged that concept because I said, you know, are we talking about the chicken or the egg here? I mean, really, why is he drinking? Because he's actually not getting help for this mental health. Yeah, he was suicidal. Issue. He was drinking because he wanted to numb himself enough so that he could take his life so through the whole process he um he decided that he wanted to go to the phoenix uh, recovery um, which is actually here on the mainland um and so but the the deal is is that he had to be in he had to be changed from involuntary to voluntary he had to agree and go there as a voluntary patient so the criteria was that he had to be voluntary for three days. So at that time, they transitioned him uh, to a voluntary patient, and then he was transported over to the Phoenix Recovery, and that was on February 6th. Yeah, so, yeah. Crystal, you can maybe... And then on, so the day before he left, I had him over for a family visit. Everything was good. He was feeling positive about going. He had plans to become a peer support worker after. He had plans to help others in mental health. Um, He went the next day. On Tuesday, I think it is, Cindy, you got a call saying from Phoenix saying that, have you seen your brother? He's left. We tried to call him over and over again. His phone was off. I eventually got through to him and he said, I'm so glad you called. Like I, you know, I'm glad someone has reached out to me to show me they care and he had come he had told me he'd left all his stuff on the ferry except for the shoelaces from his shoes that he he didn't need anything else that he was home now that he was back on the island and he wouldn't tell me where he was and I talked to him for about like almost four hours three hours I don't know I think maybe it just forever we were talking and I was trying to track him down and eventually he was waffling between do I go to the hospital do I go you know use these ropes and laces like he couldn't make up his mind and I knew he was sort of around the hospital but I didn't want to get off the phone with him and then somehow I I got through to Cindy Right. Yeah. And then, and so, yeah, you got off the phone. I, I then called him and I just drove to a location where he had communicated to me once before that he, um, where one of his plans was, I found him, he agreed to come back into the hospital that night. So when I, I brought him in the night of February 7th. Um, and so that's kind of what, I mean, that's sort of the, the long winded, um, story of of how that, um, transpired, but it was, yeah, there was a lot of 
a lot of stuff. And so um, he was in the hospital, he was in, um, they made him involuntary, then they made him voluntary, and then so what happened, uh, he was then discharged and, and were you notified, or what happened subsequent to that? Um, but when he first was taken to the hospital, he expressed in front of Cindy and to the nurse and the doctor his clear descriptive plans of what yeah. he was going to do, and yeah. that's why they kept him involuntary overnight. And, and that, that was, was to take his life. Yeah. 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 And they told like, him, and he told them in detail, and it's all through his medical records as well. And so he was then um, discharged just prior to his um, suicide. So um, yeah. in previous yeah. occasions where your brother had been discharged, had you been notified when he would be released from the hospital? Well, uh, he had been involuntary for three months, and then the only time he was discharged was to go to Phoenix. Um, and then when he got to Phoenix and he had communicated to Crystal that he didn't feel safe there and that is why and that he they left. made a mistake by letting him go because right. he was supposed to be involuntary and he um, when we got him to the hospital um, you know that night it was what we found out after the fact was this that he was he was actually released the very next morning uh, he was not kept involuntary they let him go um, so he left, but they said, you know, here's the need crisis line, um, and if you feel that you're, you know, continuing to have these thoughts of, of um, suicide, then please, like, come back. Well, he actually came back, like, five hours later and said, I'm not okay, I need help. Um, he spent another night there, and that would have been on the, the 8th of February. And then the morning of the 9th, um, he was let go again. And, um, and not once did family ever get a call. In fact, Cindy called to check up and medical, or medical records told her that he actually was still there when in fact he wasn't. They didn't have their medical records updated. And so, just because I want to make sure we have about sorry. five minutes left. No, oh no, you know what, your story so is so captivating. I could talk to you for several sorry. episodes and maybe we will. Um, don't be sorry. We but should I, put our own timers on. <laughs> I just, I just want to make sure that, that, that our listeners understand. So, you know, we're talking about a family here who, um, you know, two sisters who have been engaged, particularly you, Cindy, talking even to psychiatrists, having meetings, being involved, and then at a time when your brother was, uh, in my opinion, extremely vulnerable, had said that he intended to take his own life um, to healthcare professionals, suddenly there was no communication. Um, and when you ultimately believed he had been um, in the safe care of the hospital, in fact, he had left and then taken his own life, which is very distressing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd like to talk about while we, you know, have some time, what are you, you've identified a gap here, which is that, you know, we need to have the ability for families, particularly ones like yours, who've been engaged in helping your brother who is vulnerable navigate his way to help. What, what do you think is um, some of the main barriers and, and how can we as legislators on both sides of opposition and government work together to, to better support people? I think there needs to be some accountability and oversight over how the health authorities are um, protecting people when they're in crisis and what they feel they're allowed to do. Um, when we spoke to Island Health, they said that it was the Mental Health Act that was getting in the way from keeping people because of the four criteria. And then the consent factor where if someone says they don't want you know, family called or whatever, they can't 
contact them even if it means keeping the person alive. Um, it's still, so I feel like those are gaps for yeah. sure. And you also heard from the ministry as well, I understand. Mm -hmm. that. Um, and so what did they say, like whose responsibility would that be? Well, we received a letter from the ministry on behalf of Adrian Dix, Sheila Malcolmson, and Jennifer Whiteside in response to a letter we sent back in March about our concerns. And they said that um, the health authorities are kind of each responsible for themselves, and it's up to them what their policies and protocols are around this. Yeah, that's very concerning. Uh, you know, and I have to say, um, and, and people who've been following along with um, some of the advocacy that I've done from this office know that you know, you're not the only families, unfortunately, that have been talking about concerns with um, families who want to be able to help both provide collateral information and ongoing continued support for their loved ones as they deal with severe mental health issues, deal with suicidal ideations, addictions, um, and there's a tremendous gap here. Um, you know, I, I know that you both have um, done a lot of work to contact people to, um, within legislative positions, within the government, within um, public office, even in terms of, you know, our coroner service. So what is it that's important, you know, before we wrap up, what is it that you would like people listening to know and how can they get involved in helping raise awareness and advocacy to help families and to help people um, get better services in our mental health care system? Well, I think the more people that speak up about stories like this and keep the conversation going and approach the government about it and the people who get to make the decisions about policy and the Mental Health Act um, to make it possible for family to be involved when they want to, to be used as a resource and for there to be less um, addictions before mental health treatment um, for them to be treated for their for people to be treated for their men mental health um, struggles as well. I think that advocating for that is something that hopefully can make a bit of a change. I think you're right, and you know what? I I'm gonna I could go on honestly with you two extraordinary women for hours. It was a, a real pleasure to meet you. First of all, we we met through emails, then we met on the phone. We were able to meet in person just a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know I think that there's just so much more to, to learn. Um, I look forward to, to hearing more advocacy from you and I think that there's um, hopefully a lot that we can do to continue to push the conversation. So, you know, thank you both for being my guests on the show today um, and taking the time to, to speak with us. Um, so that was Crystal <laughs> Kenzie and Cindy Zimmer, two awesome sisters who are advocating for change in the mental health care system here in BC after the death of their brother James. And I want to thank you for listening. And if you have a topic that you'd like to hear on Outside the Chamber, come on and send me an email. I invite you. It's eleanor.sterco.mla at ledge.bc.ca. So until next time, take care.